The Secret World Chronicle, a podcast novel series created by Mercedes Lackey and Steve Livy. Presenting Book Three, World Well Lost. Keeping up appearances. Written and read by Veronica Jagger. Three for one, or so the sign in the window proclaimed amidst a jumble of neon and gaudy metal plates that advertised the joys of both domestic and imported refreshment. Water stains rose three feet up the wall. The peeling wallpaper and scoured linoleum proof of rough times. The chairs were secondhand. The tables pitted and stained. But the bar along the west wall gleamed with a shine that said maybe, just maybe, things were starting to turn around. Old pictures and new frames hung on the walls, signatures and messages from tourists and regulars between the yellowing black marker. Everything was in transition, from bad to better, in the bar on Bourbon Street. Everything, including the woman picking glass out of her hand. She gritted her teeth and dug deeper with ragged fingernails. Ignoring the mess she made, someone had been careless enough to leave a broken glass behind the clean ones, and she had discovered the mistake seconds too late. Melisandre Gaucher shot a dirty look towards the back office, knowing full well who was really responsible and who would avoid any blame. Bartender for the early shift was an air-headed little thing who couldn't tell rum from vodka, but the boss kept her on for morale. Morale. It was a tasteful way to say something baser, but it did keep Elliot from chasing her. For Mel, that was reason enough to just dig out the glass, wrap her hand in a towel, and get back to work. The afternoon was warm and humid. The beer was thankfully ice cold, and the combination made for good business. Good business meant good tips, and good tips meant another week of paying the rent. For now, the bar was dead. Save for a few good old boys knocking back long necks as ESPN droned on. Yesterday at this time, she had been treated to a visit by a pair of suits flashing black snake IDs and waving a contract. The first no hadn't made an impact, nor had the sixth and seventh. Echo might have deserted her, but Mel's pride would not allow her to stoop so low as to become a weapon for hire, and so she told them that and more. Reaching under the bar for the sawed-off shotgun that Elliot kept there for these sorts of emergencies, and found a bottle opener. That damn dancer! A colorful stream of Cajun-laced invectives had filled the tiny space, and to the two operatives, Mel brandished a double-barreled shotgun. They were surprised but not scared, and hadn't made any motion to leave. That was, not until the door had opened and a third person had strolled in. Bulwark's presence had tipped the tide in Mel's favor, and he had stood by calmly as the Black Snake boys backpedaled and left the bar. The stoic man had even gone so far as to give Mel the courtesy of a lookout and an all clear, which was when she caught the semblance of a smile as the shotgun dissolved to nothing more than a flimsy piece of metal hot glued to a magnet. Two others had followed him inside: a frightened woman with a pretty face, and a man whose face was obscured by a swath of red fabric. She had answered questions, offered them drinks, and then sent them on their collective merry with the best information she had. Had it been anyone else, she wouldn't have said a damn thing. Echo had left her out in the cold years ago, but she didn't hold it against Bull, much, 
orders had been orders, chain of command and all that, and she knew that he hadn't made the decision to put her out to pasture. So, she didn't hate him, and that was why she had pointed the three to the places she had heard that the Stone Brothers frequented. The glass was nearly out, blood running from wrist to elbow in a neat trickle from her attempts. Mel grimaced and reached for a clean rag, then contemplated the collection of liquors in front of her. "'What says don't give a damn about nothing these days?' She smirked, picked up the bottle of Jack Daniels, and wet the cloth. Gritting her teeth, Mel pressed the whiskey-soaked rag to her wounds and slowly began to clean herself up. She wondered if Bull and his team would be back after their recon, or if they would pack up and return to whatever HQ had sent them. For what it was worth, Mel told herself, she would be perfectly content to never see the Echo Man again. She'd been part of Echo, once upon a time. Mel Gaucher, Reverie, according to the database, had been part of the Army's 2nd Ranger Battalion from the day she had turned 19. Enlisted out of high school, her commanding officers had nearly wet themselves when they had discovered just what she could do in the field. Illusion was her forte, concealment and mind games her companion, as she accompanied seasoned troops on covert operations. By 21, Mel had been deployed in operations throughout Somalia, Egypt, and Iraq. By 27, she was sent back to New Orleans with medical discharge papers and a promise of rehab and recovery that never came. It had happened outside of Fallujah. During a raid on a rogue cell that was keeping trucks from getting supplies to the area's only makeshift hospital. When they'd left that morning, there were six of them. By that night, she was held in front of a video camera and made to recite from a script, the rest of her team nowhere to be found. It had taken the Echo Boys and the Marines weeks to find her, even with one of their mind-fraggers using his own specialized radar. Mel had hidden behind layers of her own imagination, projecting horror after horror on anyone who had dared to come near her, including the rescue ops who finally managed to knock her out. Sedated until they arrived in Germany, Mel was poked and prodded and questioned for days by Army and Echo psychologists alike. When the doctors had satisfied their curiosity, they had called in Bulwark to deliver the final verdict. To say that Mel was bitter would have been akin to calling Mardi Gras a backyard barbecue. She had devoted more than a third of her life to both the Army and Echo, and both organizations had put her out to pasture rather than try to fix what had been broken. The Army's second-string psychiatrist had offered drugs to suppress her abilities and counter the unavoidable post-traumatic stress disorder that racked her body and soul after her ordeal, but Echo had left her high and dry. With their staff of telempaths and neurofixers, the woman known as Reverie could have gone back to service in a year overseas, less than that stateside. Mel wouldn't have cared either way. She just wanted to be useful somewhere. For something. To someone. The day that the Nazis had stormed through the French Quarter, she had been useful. For a few days, she had been worth something. To someone. The day that the Nazis had landed, she had been working the noisy bar by herself while Elliot had stayed in the back, teaching the new girl how to make drinks. Mel had ignored the lie. Elliot bought the liquor, but he couldn't mix it properly, and remained out front, gathering tips and popping long necks as fast as she pulled them from the cooler. And then, all of a sudden, the quarter exploded and she was out on the sidewalk, staring down the street as a line of metal giants cut a swath through strip joints and sandwich shops alike.
When the sun had come up next day, she had been back at the bar, cleaning up and rebuilding and hauling bags of ice to the distribution center in the middle of Jackson Square. Waiting for more help. For the same sort of help that had gone to New York, Las Vegas, Atlanta, Boston, St. Louis, and that had somehow conveniently missed her beloved New Orleans. The government forgot about their little corner of the world, ravaged just as badly by the inexplicable arrival and hasty retreat of metal men, but less important than those cities that Echo had called home. Although the government had forgotten the Big Easy, the businesses hadn't. The less-than-reputable organizations hadn't. The opportunists, the swindlers, the cheats and the liars, they all moved in on the broken city like sharks on a bloody shipwreck and had a hell of a feast, dividing the city amongst themselves and forcing the residents to choose sides. Without outside help, they built the city back up far more quickly than any government agency could have. Dirty money had that ability. But it came at a price. New Orleans' resurrection, courtesy of the underground, had cost it that carefree spirit, that bon temps that used to roll through the quarter, night and day. These days, the crews that kept the city running and businesses thriving, with the powerful and resourceful at the top of the unique New Orleans ladder. Before that day in August, crews kept the distinct flavor of the Big Easy in check, planning the festivities and letting the good times roll throughout the city from mid-January until the crescendo of Mardi Gras hit. Since the invasion, the crews had become more than just a trendy organization for a few parties and an elaborate float. They were still part social club and part charity, but mostly enforcers for their own carefully guarded territories. Petty crime was a thing of the past, thanks to the strict control that they maintained. Instead, the thriving criminal underground gained and lost ground through business deals and questionable rebuilding contracts. Mel looked up to see the television flicker as gunfire rang out across the street. She paused, her hand reaching for the real handgun she kept next to the register, as she waited for someone from the crew of Perseus to answer the challenge. This newer crew had brought together hustlers, business owners, native and newcomers, to exert control from Dauphin Street to the Mississippi River, between Canal Street and St. Peter's Cathedral. In that four-by-five square of city blocks, they controlled the lucrative entertainment district, the livelihood, the very pulse of the city. Others held the waterfront or the garden district, but the crew of Perseus laid claim to this corner of New Orleans. From the front of the nearby novelty shop, bolts of electricity snaked across the street to answer the gunshot challenge. There was an acrid smell of something burning, followed shortly by a car alarm and a fair amount of shouting. Mel let out a long breath and smirked as a stream of vindictive Creole reminded the shooter that there were worse things than bullets to worry about these days. She turned away from the door. The three men stared at her, the NASCAR race on the television a staticky mess. One of them waggled an empty bottle at her, his smile a probable attempt at charm that just resulted in being snaggletoothed and creepy. Hey, darling, you know how to fix this. Sure thing. Won't even take me half a lap, she drawled. She hopped over the counter, hands still wrapped in the whiskey-soaked towel. With her uninjured hand, she reconnected the fraying wire to the cable box, then thumped the set for good measure. Sure enough, the image returned on the same lap as when it had gone to static. The men chuckled and snorted, and Mel set down another round of cheap domestic beer before turning back to the bar. Well, well. 
as pretty as you are in my dreams, Revy baby. The voice pushed the space between her eyes, the tone familiar yet nearly forgotten after so long away from the service. Mel froze, then turned to see a lanky man in denim and a worn but clean t-shirt hanging in the doorway. Her jaw dropped, and he repeated the words aloud in a rough Cajun drawl. She threw her head back and laughed, her easy tone a mask for the familiar ache in her heart. And when did you get into town, Kip? Could have used you in a fight yesterday. She moved around to the bar stools to meet him with both arms around his neck. The faint smell of cheap cigarettes clung to his shirt and mingled with the sweat that came from an easy walk through the quarter on a summer afternoon. His hands moved about her waist, and he returned the embrace before lifting her up to sit on the polished bar top. Mel winked and bent to press her lips to his in another more intimate greeting. The shared kiss was as much for show as for sentiment, and it had the boys in the back staring in envy at the everyman who'd just walked in. He laughed and patted her hip, his thumb hooked in the worn belt loop of her jeans. Got in last night, actually. Been doing work here and there, and I figured I'd stop in and see how life's treating my favorite army girl. Mel's smile faded, and she swung her legs around to slide back behind the bar. With Kip came a host of memories, mostly involving their combined days with Echo. She had met the man during her first tour in Somalia, and the two had become fast friends and more as the years had gone by. Any relationship was of the on-again, off-again sort, with no real animosity between them when they had drifted apart after assignments on opposite sides of the world. He still looked like she remembered him, pale gray eyes and jet-black hair complementing a wiry build, the caramel tone of his skin only bringing more attention to the lazy smile he still bestowed upon her. She shook her head and bent to retrieve a bottle from the cooler. "'I ain't on me no more, Kip. Ain't really reverend no more, neither.' I do have a say over who gets a beer in this place, though. You want one? Sure wouldn't say no. He settled on one of the bar stools and leaned against the counter, nodding politely to the men in the corner. This place looks good, even after all that hell that went through here. Guess you've been keeping busy, Mel? She shrugged, the bottle cap lifted with a practiced flick of her wrist. Busy enough. Work, sleep, getting by. Keeping my head down and my nose out of trouble. Helping out where I can. Tizzy's shop got burned up good back when them things came, and she lost Roscoe a few months ago, so I'll work Sundays for her at the shop so she can get to church. It was the same story for everyone here, she mused. For Mal, it was just as much therapy for her as help for others. Serving cold drinks or spooning up fresh jambalaya, she could prove to herself that she was worth something to somebody. You know, she began, if you're around for a few days, they could use another set of hands to help fix the tile in front. The man shook his head, taking a long pull on the bottle before answering. Sorry to hear about Roscoe, but I'm just passing through. I did come by special to check on you, though. And what's this about a fight yesterday? Anything to do with them stone boys and what went down at their little club? Mel paused, her thumb running over the raised edges of the bottle cap. While she had sent Bulwark and his two associates in that direction of the Stone Brothers, she hadn't heard anything about the results of that meeting. Instead, she pushed the conversation in another direction, not wanting to be reminded of the Echo Group. 
I don't know, Kip. Fights happen round here all the time. I do my best to stay out of it, earn my keep. What about you these days? I got a decent gig out in Biloxi, actually. Not too far from Kiesler, working security at one of them big casinos. Decent money, too, he added with a wink. Better and tipsy in there. I mean, if you wanted, I could put in a good word for you there. Get you working with a clientele that tips in grants instead of Washington's. That? Or you could get a security detail out there, too. With those pretty tricks of yours, the cheaters and swindlers wouldn't see you coming. The blonde woman sniffed, her arms folded across her chest as she thought of the people that were still recovering and rebuilding. Going to Biloxi would make her just as bad as the Echo Brass, and that wasn't something that she wanted on her conscience. Besides, the stretch of casinos along Highway 90 were garish tourist traps even more than before, now that so much dirty money had been poured into them to build them back up. Thanks, but I'll pass. Working here pays the rent, and... I got people to look after. Like who? He shook his head and gestured to the door and the dirty window that looked out onto Bourbon Street. This place is falling apart left and right, Ravi baby. It's not like they're looking out for you because you get him a beer at the end of the day. Kip shook his head and turned away, his gaze focused on the race. Regardless, his words pushed between her eyes, the touch a sweet caress against her mind such that she immediately relaxed. You used to be so good at what you did, Ravi. Best combination of raw talent and special skills I'd ever seen. And Uncle Sam kicked you to the curb, with them echo punks shutting the gate behind you. She swayed slightly, her eyes closing as the familiar and soothing tones washed over her. All other noise disappeared behind Kip's mental voice. The television, the clink of bottles against the tables, the shuffle of feet on linoleum. When Mel spoke, the words came slow, soft, and dreamy to match the brush against her thoughts. Yeah. They didn't give me nothing for all I did. Just goodbye and have a nice life for all I did for them. Could make them pay, Revy. There's folks out there who appreciate what you can do for them. Ain't like Echo where you got a kowtow to some big shot who ain't gonna understand what you've been through. He took a long pull on the bottle, a boot resting on another stool. Behind that, Mel hummed in contentment as a bittersweet smile lifted the corner of her mouth. His own posture relaxed to match hers. He smiled as the race went to a commercial. The fans kept a steady rhythm, the click-click as much hypnosis as the voice that surrounded her like the August heat. How about we pack up your things and drive down I-10? Stop off in Diaberville at the old house? Find a few memories left there and start over. You and me, making some sweet dreams together. A crash followed the sound of chairs scraping against the floor. Jolted Mel from the trance. The touch abruptly pulled from her mind. In front of her, Bulwark flexed a meaty hand before setting the amber bottle upright on the bar. The three men at the table in the back had discarded all semblance of backwater ignorance, each reaching for his sidearm while Kip staggered to his feet. He licked the corner of his mouth, grimacing as he tasted blood. Was wondering when you'd come back here, Bull. Didn't take you for the sentimental type, he said. Likewise. So, did you start working for Black Snake after the Nazis landed? 
Or did you get a head start after that dishonorable discharge? I didn't keep up with your stellar career after the court-martial. He folded both arms across his chest and nodded to Mel. Heard that Damon got into town shortly after we left. And after your run-in with Black Snake yesterday. Mel turned a hate-filled gaze on Kip, who smirked as the mercenaries moved behind him. Her face reddened as she realized what had happened. You. Oh, you didn't. No. Wait, you did. You lying, two-time, and selfish sack of shit. You came here to turn me over to them, because the ones here yesterday couldn't. Her eyes narrowed, and she wiped her mouth with the back of her wrapped hand, wishing that she could get the smoky taste of his kiss off of her lips. He spread his arms in a gesture of faux welcome. What can I say? They knew your weakness, Revy. When reason don't work, they give old Cajol a call and he answers. So an old flame comes walking back into your life and you're lonely enough to believe whatever he tells you. I'm making you an offer. It's good money, and Black Snake will put you to good use. People like you and me, we're hot property these days. I ain't a traitor, Kip, she spat. I'm tending bar, I got a right to refuse service to anyone, and I'm refusing to serve you. Get moving. Look, the only way you make money this good out here is down on your knees, Kip answered, his lip curled into a sneer. And I'm pretty sure that you don't want to go back to that. You're what, ten, twelve years out of practice? Mel tensed up, then reached under the counter to come up this time with the actual sawed-off shotgun. The group behind Kip chuckled amongst themselves, and Kip took a step forward. She cocked the hammer, snarling. Get out of here, Damon. You and your thugs. I ain't so low as a snake's belly to decide to go crawling in their lair. Kip tut-tutted and shook his head. Now, Revy, you and I both know that ain't a real gun. A blast shattered the table behind the four men the sound prompting them to jump and draw their own weapons. Bulwark moved next to the bartender, his expression still unwavering in spite of the threat of more gunfire. I'd bet that is a real gun, Damon. I'd also bet that if you attack an Echo operative in that fashion, as her commanding officer, I'd be forced to take action. She ain't Echo no more, Bull. She is if she wants to be. The offer hung in the air as both men looked to the bartender with the whiskey-soaked rag about her hand, the can opener in the back pocket of her frayed blue jeans, and the expression that said she had had just about enough of the entire conversation. She looked from Kip to Bulwark and back, then smirked at the Blacksnake operatives. Like hell I'm not, Echo. Mel took aim and shot again, this time silencing the television above the heads of the Blacksnake men. A rain of glass fell, and the bartender smirked as the group scattered. I'll decline that offer, Cajon. You and your boys can find somebody else who wants to play traitor. I ain't biting. Think about it, Revy. We got people who can get you fixed up proper. No more nightmares, no more shots, no more wondering if what you see is really there. Kip's wheedling tone slipped into her thoughts once more, but Mel stiffened against the onslaught. A hand went to her face, 
fingernails digging into her forehead as she fought to get his voice out. We got the medical records. The reports from Fallujah. Nearly turned your boys on each other. You think the walking wall there wants that sort of liability? Cut it, cajole. Bulwark stepped between the two, his size allowing him to look down at the wiry mentalist. Like I said, and like she said, she's Echo. You're done here. Done? Boy, I'm just getting started. Mel grimaced as she felt the twist behind her eyes, the pressure rising as her vision blurred and she cocked the hammer back. Her arm rose of its own accord, and Mel tried to drop the weapon even as she felt a pair of strong hands pull her down and around the bar. Bulwark pulled her into a headlock, one palm pressing her shoulder to his chest as he wrenched the shotgun from her hand. Stars blossomed in her field of vision just as shots rang out, and for a moment everything around her had an azure tint to it. Above her, Bulwark grunted as the shots from the Black Snake men found their marks. Just as suddenly there was a crash, and the shooting stopped, and the grip around her neck and shoulders loosened. The Echo Man stood straight, helping the bartender to her feet. The bullets that had been intended for them had ricocheted off of Bulwark's personal force field, the kinetic energy mirrored upon contact. While he had to contend with a few bruises, the Black Snake operatives were not as lucky. Two tended to shoulder wounds while Kip stood on one foot, his jeans bloodied from a shot just below his left knee. Nell picked up the discarded shotgun and aimed at the Meta's other knee. Behind her, Bulwark stood expressionless, arms folded across his massive chest. She cocked the hammer back and sneered. Now, get out of my life, Kip Damon, and get the hell out of this bar. She locked the front door once the mercenaries had left and filled a clean towel with ice from the cooler. She set it in front of Bulwark, along with two fingers of the best whiskey they had as a thank you. Elliot had run out of the office to find Mel aiming at the four men, and a scowl from the bartender had sent him right back. She'd have to explain things later, once everything had calmed down and she'd cleaned up. Mel filled another shot glass with whiskey and raised it in a toast to the Echo Man. Look, I appreciate you stepping in, Bull. Not that I don't appreciate you coming back and playing along when I needed it, but making the offer was a nice touch. The seat squealed underneath the big man's weight as he sat at the bar. He pressed the ice against his shoulder, but didn't touch the glass. I was serious, Gaucher. You want in? You're in. We lost a lot of good people that day and were hurting for help. She paused, the glass at her lips. With a fair amount of restraint, Mel set the glass down and knocked her fist against her thigh as she struggled to come up with a suitable response. So, second string, then. Wasn't good enough the first time around, but now that there's this need, you'll just take anybody. It's not like that, Gaucher. I'm not talking about a charity case. I don't have time for that. I need answers, and I need good people to find them. Bulwark fixed her with a look that none of her illusions could have ever equaled. Are you willing to be worth something, Reverie? Or are you only good for a bar fight in Jack Daniels these days? Mel turned away and braced herself against the back bar, a long breath escaping her lips. 
If she stayed, it wouldn't be long before Blacksnake came back with more people to retaliate rather than recruit. If she left, it would be a chance to prove herself again, and maybe start fixing what was so very broken. If I come with you, and join up, she said. If I do that, do you think they could... She made a vague motion with her unwrapped hand, fingers gesturing to her temple. Fix it? The barstool creaked as he shifted again. We've got some good docs who might be able to tackle it. Some of the newer recruits have experience in that sort of rewiring, and they've got a gentler touch than the army docs. Multiple therapy sessions, so you don't lose what you've got. What happened to you isn't uncommon, Gaucher, he said, his tone matter-of-fact. It gets fixed every day. Then why didn't someone bother fixing it the first time? She barked at his reflection in the glass, her hand coming down hard on the counter in frustration. If I was so good, why did they push me away? Damn it, boy, I loved what I did. I didn't want to leave even after what happened. I wanted to be worth something again, and they kicked me out. So be worth something now. He raised his head to meet her gaze through the mirror, neither sympathy nor pity in his expression. Pack up, turn in your notice, and be at the Jack's Brewery building in two hours. Leave the self-pity here, and don't be late. I've got a schedule to keep. Her eyes narrowed at his reflection, and she finally dropped her chin to her chest as she took a deep breath. Hands relaxed before she turned around, and Mel sized up the man with a trained eye before speaking again. Scotch. Pardon? You're a Scotch man. Without waiting for an answer, she poured him a double of the top-shelf brand they stocked and set the glass next to his hand. She left the bottle on the counter before walking to the back and throwing a few words in the direction of the office. There was a shout of indignation, but Mel returned seconds later with a lazy smile on her pretty face. So, she drawled as she leaned against the bar. How long till we leave for Atlanta, boss? <laughs>